If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 1. We're going to be reading John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. So folks, listen. This is God's Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is God's word. We are we're getting ready to celebrate Christmas. Right? Christmas is coming this week and as a church we are looking in our sermon series for Christmas on we're looking at relationships. Okay, Christmas by itself it's the celebration of the birth of Jesus. Okay, make no mistake about it. Christmas is all about the coming of Jesus into this world. But it affects, as we understand the birth of Jesus and what it meant, it affects the relationships that we have. It affects our relationship with Jesus, obviously. Right? That makes a big difference. But it also affects our relationships in the church. And when we know other people who share the same belief that we have about God coming to earth... It affects our relationships. There's encouragement and support and, ex- and understanding that comes as we build deeper relationships based on a mutual understanding of the incarnation or the coming of Jesus at Christmas. Well, today we're going to see how Christmas affects our relationships with the world, okay? with people who are outside the church, specifically people who don't believe in Jesus. Um, our passage today, uh, this passage in John, it's John's version of the Christmas story. Okay, this is John's rendition. And we're going to, as we understand it, we're going to experience it. And then we're going to see how it applies to us as we relate to others in the world. And when you think about that, when you think about folks who don't believe in Jesus, most non-Christians that I talk to, they tend to ask questions that fall into one of three categories. Okay, and so just, just to set our minds, most non-Christians ask questions about Christianity, especially if they're exploring it, 
and their questions usually fall under one of three categories. Is it true? Does Christianity actually work for you? Like, does it make a difference in your life? And then, will it apply to me? Okay, is it true? Does it work for you? And really, does it apply to me? And as we see John explain the miracle and the wonder of Christmas, we're going to see answers to these questions in this passage. Okay, so we're going to, we've got three points. Let me give you the three points um, as we start. We're going to see first that the Word is God. Second, the Word is man. And then third, the Word is Savior. Okay, so the Word is God, the Word is man, the Word is Savior. Those are the three points we're going to look at today. So let's look first at, the, at John's point that the Word is God. And just as we look at this, I don't know if it struck you as odd, but John's rendition, like this is John's Christmas story, right? It is so different from the other Gospels. It's so different from Matthew and from Luke, right? It's, in, in a sense, it sounds really philosophical and abstract, right? I mean, you read this and you get this idea of the Word. There's God, there's light, there's life. There's all these concepts and metaphors. What don't you see here? Well, there's no mention of Mary, no mention of the manger, no mention of the angels, no mention of the shepherds, no mention of all the stuff in the nativity scene, right? There's none of that. John doesn't even mention Jesus by name until verse 17, right? This is a very different presentation of the story of Christmas. Why does John do that? Well, it's because John is trying to communicate. He's trying to communicate effectively, actually, and he's, he's got in his mind the two different kinds of people that were alive back then that would have read this whole gospel story. Um, he's trying to share the meaning of Christmas with people who have both a Jewish background and people who have a non-Jewish background. Okay, that was kind of the world back then. John was a Jew, and if you were a Jew, you had the other Jews, and then you had the non-Jews. So it was Jews and everybody else. And John's trying to communicate to both of these folks with their backgrounds. Verse 1 in the passage, he starts off by saying, in the beginning. That's a quote right out of the very first verse in the whole Bible. In Genesis 1.1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So this is a quote from the Old Testament. It's the Jewish scriptures. And what John is saying here is, I'm going to tell you a story about Jesus. And the story of Jesus is the story of the God of the Old Testament. So if you were a Jew back then, you would have read this and thought, in the beginning, well, I, I know where this is coming from. I know what he's talking about. He is saying that this is the, continual, the continuation of the story of God from the Hebrew Bible. And then John talks about the Word. The Word. Now, this was a term that was very much a part of the philosophy and religious world of the non-Jews of John's day. Okay, so I'm going to give you a little bit of background because it's important to understand, like, why does John call Jesus the Word? Okay, um, it did have some Hebrew references. The, the Word of God is... Uh, it fills the Old Testament. It was God's self-disclosure, so there's parallels there. But to the non-Jew, the word, in Greek it was the term logos or logos, depending on how you pronounce it. Um, and this was the rational mind that controlled the universe. Okay? If you asked a Greek speaker, a Greek back then, you know, what is God, what is... They, they would have different ideas, and one of the ideas was that the word, they would say, oh, the word is the rational mind that rules the universe. 
Okay? Now, the doctrine of the word in Greek philosophy was developed so that it was an effort to try to join the world that you could see with the world that you couldn't. Okay? They came up with this idea and they called it the word. The word is what helps us make sense and connections between what we can see and what we can't. Okay, and so um, some philosophers even said that the word was a divinely created intermediary between God and the world as a mediating principle in the creation of the world and as a source of meaning of the world and of humanity. Isn't that interesting? Right? They came up, the Greeks um, came up with this notion of the word, and this is what it meant. And so the idea was, if you can get in touch with the word, if you can get in touch with this power, this principle of life, then your life will find its true meaning. That was part of the religious and philosophical views of the day. And so John is saying, look, what you believe I am going to proclaim to you. John is saying, look, you believe in this abstract principle that you call the word. I'm going to tell you about the word. The word is Jesus. All that you want the word to do, all that you believe the word does, mediates between heaven and earth, right? Gives meaning and purpose in life, governs and rules. I'm here to tell you that that word is Jesus. It's not an abstract principle. It is a person. And I'm going to introduce you to him. That's what John is trying to do. And so at Harbor, we call this contextualizing. Right? You have to understand the people that you're talking to in order to communicate effectively. And that's what John is doing. John is contextualizing the message of Jesus, the story of Jesus, into a world that has both Jews and non-Jews who have different views of God. It would almost be like um, today if we were to go into an AA meeting or a 12-step meeting, right? And just to be able to walk in and, you know, and to begin to share with people, you know, the higher power that you're acknowledging, right? Step one, you acknowledge a higher power. Well, that higher power is Jesus. And let me tell you about it. Okay, that's what John is doing when he, ta- when he calls Jesus the Word. He's saying it's not just a power, it's a person. It's a person and you can know him. It's Jesus. Thank you, Lord. And so, for you today, if you're a Christian or not a Christian... John is going to invite you to compare your beliefs about God with what he says about Jesus. Okay? He's going to say that Jesus is the God that you sense is out there. Jesus is the manifestation of what you think God is or what you think God should be. And so I want you to think just for a minute, what is God like? What do you think God is? Who do you think God is? What does God do? I want you to think about that. Because as we look at this passage, we're going to see if Jesus isn't actually the expression of what you believe. Okay, and so for John, who is the Word? He's really, really clear. From the beginning, he says the Word is God. Okay, this is clear. Look at verses 1 and 2. 
in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God, semicolon. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So John is being very clear that this word is God. It's also clear from verse 3, because this word creates all things. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So this word is God, not just in his person, but in his actions. This word has created all things. This set of verses is one of the passages in the Bible that teaches us about the Trinity. Okay? The Bible teaches that there is one God. There is only one God, and yet that one God has revealed himself in three different persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we see here the dynamics of that. Because the Bible says there's only one God, and yet here you've got the Word being with God and the Word being God. Right? You've got no one seen God, and yet the only God who's at the Father's side is explaining him. And so we see here, this is a passage that teaches us that we need to, it has taught the church to understand that God is triune. Three persons, one God. Um, N.T. Wright, who's a, a great author, he said this, John knows perfectly well that he's making language go beyond what's normally possible. Okay, John is not confused here. John knows perfectly well that what he's doing is he's pushing language beyond what's normally possible, but it's Jesus that makes him do it. It's Jesus that makes him do it. I was was thinking about that, and I was thinking, you know, if God, the God who created the universe, were to enter into the universe, don't you think that would be kind of hard to explain? How do you go about explaining that to somebody? Right, that he is still holding the universe together. He's still governing and ruling, and yet he's part of it. Right, that's going to be kind of challenging. So, if you're struggling a little bit, you know, and, and I know that um, there there are lots of different. Um, I mean, usually where where cults go wrong is with the person of Jesus. They kind of muddy it up because they try to say, "Well, okay, wait, wait, you can't have Jesus and God as God. So we got to make Jesus something else." Well, this passage doesn't give us any room other than to say Jesus is God. And yet there's one God, and yet there's the Word and God. And so it's a mystery. And it ought to be a mystery because we, if we could fully understand God, I don't think he's God anymore. Right? So, now, so the Word is God in terms of who he is, in terms of what he does. The word, this passage teaches us, the word fills the world with goodness. Now look at verse 4. It says, in him, in the word, was life. Was life. This isn't just the ability to breathe, but it's, it's all that makes, makes for human flourishing. Right? I'm talking about not just things that are alive, but I'm talking about life. Right? When you feel alive, you're not saying I'm breathing, you're saying... I feel like this is the way life is supposed to be, right? That's what life is. That's what it's talking about here. This, the, the word as God is the source of all that is good and all that's life-giving, okay? And then the word is the source of light. 
verses 4 and 5. In him uh, was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. And so we see here, this is illumination, right? It's teaching and understanding. Um, it also, it, it's identifying right and wrong. And, and let, me, let me make sure that it's clear. This isn't identifying right and wrong to beat you up, okay? It's not a list of rules of do's and don'ts so that somebody can come to you and just whack you over the head and make you feel awful and guilty, right? That's not what the light is for. The light isn't to beat people up, but it's, so it's that we would know what leads to the experience of life. It's that we would know what's life-giving. It's that we would understand if you act in these ways, you're not promoting life and you're going to end up feeling empty. But if you act in these ways, these are the paths of rightness, righteousness. These are the paths of life and joy and happiness. And so the word is the source of, of light, and that's, I mean, we have a Bible, right? The words of Scripture give us light and life. And we see, too, from the end of verse 5, that, um, that it's, it's strong enough to withstand evil. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Doesn't that sound like God to you? Right? I mean, you think about what God is. Created the universe, the source of life and goodness and flourishing, willing to shine the light into the ignorance of our lives, and then strong enough so that the evil in the world can't overcome him. That's a, getting toward a pretty good description of, of who God is. You know, John says that the Word is God. And that's, that's clear from this text. And so that's what we see here in, in our first point. Now, our second point is where the wonder comes. Our second point is where Christmas comes, where John tells us a part of the story of God that no one anticipated, that no one expected. And that's our second point, that the Word is man. Look at verse 14. The Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. That's Christmas. Four words. The Word became flesh. God came near. Jesus came not just to mediate between heaven and earth, but He came to join heaven and earth. He brought, because he, he brought God to earth. And so he is joining heaven and earth, not just mediating. And look, it says he became flesh and then dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. We've got to think about this word dwell. It's a really special word. Um, it's actually, it's the word in Greek when it was originally written. It's the word for tent. Okay, and so it, it's like saying Jesus tented among us. And that's important because when you think about the Bible that the, the folks had back then, it was the Old Testament. And if you start talking about God tenting among his people, what do you think of? You think of the tabernacle. 
the tabernacle in the Old Testament that God outlined the, the construction of in the book of Exodus. It was built in the book of Leviticus, and then it traveled with the people. It was this large, elaborate tent where God dwelt with his people, where God lived with his people. The tabernacle was an effort on God's part to be close to his people. God was saying, I love you so much that I want you to know that I want a relationship with you. I don't want you to think about me just as a power up there, but a presence down here. And so God had this tabernacle erected that was the place where his glory dwelt. It was who he was in the midst of his people, and he went with them wherever they went. Wherever they went, God was in their midst. He was in the middle of them. And when they'd camp, they'd put the tabernacle in the center, and you'd have three tribes on the, no- on the north side of the tent, three tribes on the south, three tribes on the, w- on the west, three tribes on the east. And so the picture was God is dwelling with his people. This is how much God loves his people. He wants to be with them. He wants a relationship with them. In the Bible, it's our sin that separates us from God. Okay, um, Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2, it says, But your sins have caused a separation. Your sins are separating you from God. The idea is that when we sin, it's like we, put, we, we start building a wall between us and God. And the more we sin, the higher that wall gets. The more we sin, the thicker that wall gets. And the love and the grace that flows between us and God, really from God to us, that we need so desperately, it's like we're putting these boulders in the path and, it, and, and the grace can't flow. God's love will not flow. And so from the beginning, even in Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned, it's like the whole Bible, in a sense, is people running away from God, but then God running after people. And the tabernacle is this amazing expression of God chasing his people, of God saying, how much I love you. I want to be with you. I don't want you to live apart from me. I don't want you to cut yourself off from me with the decisions that you make. And so I'm going to come and I'm going to dwell in you. And, and so God gets, it's like he gets closer and closer and closer and closer. And in our passage, it's like we get to see the climax. In verse 14, we see the climax. Christmas is God getting as close as he possibly can to us. Coming to be with us. Drawing so near that he becomes human and lives with us. Man, that's good news. That is good, good news. Jesus came because God wants to close the gap between us and him. Jesus is like the tabernacle, John is saying, but he's infinitely better. And I think if you, if you can get a hold of that, if you can understand that that's why Jesus came, it changes everything. It changes how you think about your life. It changes how you think about God. And, and as you understand the nearness of God and how close he can get, you begin to feel the warmth of his love and it begins to change you. It begins to change you. You know, 
back to what we think about God, you know, I, I think it's one thing to think about God as the creator and the source of light and life. Jesus does all that. But this is the mind-blowing nature of Christmas, that God would come in the flesh, that he would come so that he might save us. You don't expect him to do that. You you expect him to be up there creating, governing, ruling, but you just don't expect he's going to show up. And I think for us, even both Christians and non, you don't expect sometimes, you get surprised you show up at church on Sunday, right? And God, you don't expect he's going to show up in your life and say something that's exactly what you need to hear. That he's going to draw close to you and that you're going to feel love coming from him because Jesus cares about you. And so God, the word is not just God, but the word became man. Our third point is that the word is Savior. The word is Savior. We see he has life in verse 4. And he's the source of it, so he can give it to others. He's got light, and that enlightens us, verse 5. It shines in our darkness. Verse 9, the true light which enlightens everyone. You've got to realize that he comes, Jesus comes not simply to, um, it's not just to be the light and to, to have life in and of himself, but he comes so that he can share it. He comes to share it with you. And this word as Savior reveals God. Okay, look at verse 14, the the second half of it. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, no one has seen God, the only, no one has seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. And so Jesus comes and reveals the glory of God. Okay, he makes God known to us. If you want to know who God is, you just need to look long and hard at Jesus. Because Jesus is revealing God. Now, I don't know what you think about when you think about glory. Right? We, have, we beheld his glory. Glory as the only son from the Father. What does that word mean to you? We talk about glory to God in the highest. Right? The idea of glory, it's, it's, it's kind of that, that intangible awe that you get when you're around someone important. Okay, that's kind of what glory is. It's one way to think about it. You know, there are people who have a sense of glory. Like to be around them, you kind of feel a little bit, you know, like you just can't quite be yourself, right? Because you need to kind of, you know, you're bad, you, you, know, you see them. Famous people have this. Um, you know, there's people that we respect a great deal, folks that we meet for the first time. You know, there's this glory. Jesus reveals the glory of God question is, how does John describe the glory that was revealed through Jesus? When John is going to describe the glory of Jesus, how does he describe it? He describes it with two words. 
grace and truth. What moved John more than anything else about Jesus, what has enraptured John's own heart more than anything else about God, the glory of God is revealed in grace and truth. Verse 14, he is full of grace and truth. Verse 17, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So we have grace and truth. And this, I would submit, is the glory, not only of God, but it's the glory of Christianity. Grace and truth are what make Christianity different. Truth, I think we understand. You know, God is the source of truth. He is, he is the source of what's right and what's wrong. Like, I think we get that. And Jesus taught things, and, and there are commandments in Scripture, things to do, things not to do. But if God is only truth, then religion is about having to be good enough for God. Okay? If God is only truth, then if you don't conform, if you don't measure up, then you're out. That's not Christianity. That is not the good news of Jesus. There may be churches that make you feel like that's what Christianity is, but that is not Christianity. Because Christianity, Jesus is full of grace and truth. It's grace and truth. Again, this is the glory of Christianity. What is grace? Grace is undeserved favor. It's getting blessed when you don't deserve it. That's what grace is. Grace is understanding love. Right? When someone loves you so much that they actually understand why you are the way you are and they love you anyway. That's what grace is. Grace is love in the midst of our failures and our shortcomings. Um, Grace is when things get so bad that we can't fix them. Grace is not condemning, but God coming to save. This is the glory that was revealed in Jesus. I'm going to pick on one of our songs here. And I love this song, so I'm sad to do this. But it occurred to me while we were singing. It says, um, I think it's Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Um, Yeah, the last verse on page three. You can flip over there. It says, mild he lays his glory by. Mild he lays his glory by. To be fair, this song is trying to emphasize the unbelievable way that Jesus gave up his status in heaven. And when he came, he came not just as a man, but as a servant. Right? He had no earthly glory. And so they're saying Jesus came mild and laid aside that glory. 
And so if that's what it means, I'm okay with it. I'm okay even to sing it. I sang it today. Although I thought about it. But what if, what if, if what John is saying is true, what if mild he magnified the glory of God? What if in coming as someone who is mild, he is demonstrating the grace of God? If he's doing that, then he's not laying his glory by. He's actually letting his glory shine forth in a way that changes everything about the way we think about human existence. What if glory, what, to be glorious and to deserve, to deserve glory, included grace and truth? Right? Not just that you're important, not just that you've done something amazing, but that you are humble that you are a servant, that you come to care for others. I think that's what John is saying here. We beheld his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That Jesus, in coming, in humbling himself, in letting go of all that separated him from us, that that is part of the glory of God. Not laying it aside, but actually manifesting God's glory by coming to serve. Um, Great quote from a guy named Don McLeod who wrote a book on the theology of God. And he says that at the very heart of God lies an impulse to serve. Jesus is revealing God by coming in this amazingly humble way. It's glorious. It's glorious. He is the Savior. He comes to save. And what's remarkable is that verse 14, it's just the beginning of the story, right? We're in chapter 1. If you want to see the full glory of God, full of grace and truth, you just keep reading. Because this coming to earth to be a Savior, it led him to teach, to help people understand, to build relationships with people. But then it ultimately led to him serving in the ultimate way. Not just condescending, not just humbling himself to come to earth, but actually going to the cross. But coming because the cross was the only way for him to die, was the only way that he could take our sins on himself and pay for them. That on the cross, Jesus would would sacrifice himself for us so that we would be forgiven. So that the things that are broken in our lives could be healed. Christmas leads to the cross. He comes so that he might die and then rise again, giving us victory, giving us healing, so that he, risen with healing in his wings, could then share that healing with us. That is Jesus our Savior. And so, when you think about this, when you think about this, this is what Christmas is, this is what Christmas means. And then we stop and say, okay, well, now, how does this message, how does this understanding of Christmas, how does this affect the relationships that we have with folks who don't believe? How does this affect our relationships with non-Christians? Well, I think it means we need to share. 
It means we need to share that this is what we think Christmas means. And in order to do that, you have to experience it. I was in a, a, an education conference a few years ago. Lainey and I were there, and we were listening to a gentleman talk about how to educate your kids. And he was presenting this pretty revolutionary way of, of, of bringing your kids up and giving them a good education. Um, it was very hands-off, very unstructured. It was, you know, I could tell you lots and lots about it. But, and he was presenting this as this is the way to do it. And people were asking questions. They were trying to understand how it applies. And he kept giving um, answers, specific answers to what we should be doing with our kids you know, as we raise them and want to give them a good education. And this was going on. It was an all-day seminar. And it wasn't until the end that something kind of occurred to me. And I, I, I raised my hand. And, I, and he called on me. And I said, I said, do you have any kids? <laughs> I tried really hard to ask it nicely. And he said, yeah, I do. I've got one who's three months old. I can't tell you how angry I was at that moment and how frustrated I was. Um, and here, here's what's interesting is that as I was thinking through the dynamic, well, so the point of this story is you can't share what you haven't experienced. Okay, that's the point. So there's the point. Let me tell you a little bit about this story, though. Um, here's what's funny is that... Um, as I was preparing this sermon and studying and I was realizing, okay, wait, we need to experience this before we can share it. This wave of frustration and anger came over me and I was trying to remember where it came from. I'm like, wait, wait, I've been in an environment where this happened to me, where somebody was sharing something and telling me I had to reorient my whole life around what they were saying. And then I found out that they weren't even doing it themselves, but I couldn't remember what it was. And so I had the feeling, this awful feeling and this frustration. I was like, where is this? And I couldn't remember. I was like, Lainey, do you remember where this was from? And she said, I think it might have been from this education conference. I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. And so the point is that you have to experience something in order to share it. Okay? Because if you don't, you're going to get found out. <laughs> and when you get found out, you're going to drive people so far away from whatever you're sharing that they're never going to, because they're going to be like, oh, I hate that. Oh, a hypocrite. Oh, I, did, I said a bunch of, no. You know, that's, that's what it's like. So you have to experience what you are going to share. And, and so let's just talk about the three questions or the three categories of questions that get asked. Because this is good for us, because we need to ask ourselves, have I experienced this? And then can I share it? Right? How do I share it? And so remember that first category. People ask questions that really sort of get at the issue of, is this true? Right? Is Christianity true? Boy, there's thousands and thousands of pages, books for and against that have been written on that. Let me just say that John is convinced that this is true. Okay? John is convinced this is true. John actually changed his entire life. He oriented his whole life around the conviction that Jesus was God in the flesh. That Jesus died and then rose again. And so John, his whole life changed. And John stood up for what he believed 
to his dying day. He went all the way to the end. He ended up exiled, living all by himself on an island um, because of what he believed. John was convinced. John actually saw, he was with Jesus. Okay? He was one of the folks who walked with him from the beginning. He was there from beginning to end of Jesus' ministry. And so he is, I would say he's a credible eyewitness. Um, so, I mean, is it true? If you've got other questions, we can talk about those. But, I mean, John is overwhelmingly persuaded. And every person that knew Jesus, that were part of his 12, except for Judas who betrayed him, um, every, and he even felt bad about it afterwards, every one of them, they died for what they believed. You don't do that if you're making it up. If you're the ones who make it up, you don't die for it. So is it true? Boy, I'm going to say it's true. And I think the, the next two questions will also help you be able to discern if it's true or not. The second question that people ask is, does it work? Right? Does it work for you? Let me ask you a question. Has understanding that God has come in the flesh, that Jesus has come as God and human and Savior, has that made a difference in your life? You need to think about that. Has that made, what is the difference that it's made in your life? I mean, that's something, the more of that you can think about, write down, um, the more powerful your ability to share will be. Because again, we're not talking about a principle here. We're talking about a person. And if having a relationship with the person of Jesus has made a difference in your life, that's what you share. That's what you share. Does it work for you? Does it make a difference? Just from my perspective, it has changed everything. I mean, I'm doing this now because it's changed so much for me. I mean, it has given me a real sense of peace. I know God. I was talking to my next-door neighbor, and um, he's Jewish, although he's not religious. Um, and we were talking, and, and I was just telling him how amazing it is that we can know the God who created the world. And he just said, wow. Like, I've never met anybody who said to me that they know God. Isn't that presumptuous? And I said, well, it would be if it was up to me. <laughs> you know, it would be if I, it was so good that God decided to know me. But that's not how it works. That I didn't know him, and yet he came and found me. Like, that's the message of the gospel. But to know God is to put a bedrock underneath your feet of stability that nothing can shake. The peace that passes understanding a real sense that I can be honest about who I am because I know I've been forgiven. Because my sins have been paid for. That doesn't make me want to sin, but it sure makes me want to be honest when I do. Because I know that Jesus has paid for my sins. And then to see the growth. Like I'm a different person than I was, heck, 20 years ago when I started following Jesus, but... I'm different now than I was six months ago because Jesus is continuing to, to buy. I'm getting ahead of myself here, but does it work for you? Yeah, man, it works. And, and you don't do it because it works. You do it because Jesus is worth knowing. When you believe in him, 
He covers you with his righteousness. You know, we talk about Jesus on you. You know, he, he takes away our sins, he cleanses us, he washes us clean, and then he covers us with this robe of righteousness. His perfection covers us. And then he, by his spirit, comes and lives in us. And so his perfection is now in us. And as we understand that and think about how he is patient in ways that we're not, how he is loving in ways that we're not, how he's courageous in ways that we're not, that's in us. That's what we do at the Lord's Supper. I try to convince you as you come forward that this is really Jesus on you. It's really Jesus in you. That he makes us like this. And again, it's not this ethereal power. It's the person of Jesus because you have a relationship with him. And that's what it means. I mean, John even says that it's of his fullness that we've received and grace upon grace. Verse 16. We're receiving his fullness. And so does it work for you? If you're a Christian, if it's not working, let's talk. If you're not a Christian, boy, it really does work for thousands and thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions of people. The last piece of that question, or the last group of questions is, is will it apply to me? Will it apply to me? Right, okay, that's good for you. I'm not sure if it's going to work for me. And with that, I'm going to bring you to verses 11 and 12. This is the center of this passage. It's, it's, it's really the main thrust that John wants to get at. It says, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. That's the tragedy. That's the tragedy that when Jesus finally did, when God came in the flesh to bring salvation, boy, the folks that had supposedly been in relationship with him for a long time didn't recognize him. They didn't know him because they had gotten so far away from God. And I think that's true for us sometimes. With the decisions that we make, we've, we've gotten ourselves so far away from God that when we hear about Jesus, sometimes we don't recognize him as God. But then verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, to them he gave the right to become children of God. So does this apply to you? If you believe, it does. If you are willing to receive Jesus, to believe in his name, then you will have the right, the authority to be a child of God. That you will enter into a relationship with God that will fill you with joy, with wonder, with happiness, because you will be in relationship with Jesus. So it does apply. And so for us, just to, to try to bring this to, to a close, um, experience it. If you believe in Jesus, you will experience it. If you're trusting in him today, um, you should be experiencing it. If you're not, let's press into community. Let's talk. Let's pray together. Let's have conversations because what John is saying is true for anyone who receives him. And if you're not a Christian today, I'd invite you to put your faith, trust, believe this passage that Jesus was God come in the flesh. And you will find that if you put your trust in him, 
understanding that he came and then he died and rose again, you will experience life. Life. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, the glory that you revealed, full of grace and truth, and that we might receive from your fullness. We need your grace and your truth. Your truth that exposes us and your grace that washes us clean. Your truth that points us in the right direction and your grace that gives us the strength to follow you. All of this surrounded by your love that we would know you and be in a relationship with you. Thank you for coming. Thank you that Christmas means so much more. Help us to press in to you. Help us not to lose you in Christmas. And Jesus, for those folks who are here and aren't yet trusting in you, would you give them the faith? Help them to see that what they hope God could be you are and more. Draw us all closer to you, we pray, for your sake, for your glory. Amen.